Good evening. I hope everyone is doing well this week. We are continuing our discussion on understanding the biblical world, exploring the images and themes of and cultures uh, within the Bible. And I hope this has been a, a, a blessing uh, for you, this series. Uh, I hope it's uh, giving you some food for thought and opened your eyes uh, to many of the things in Scripture that either we overlook or maybe we misread. Uh, and kind of helps uh, uncover some of the beauty that we often miss in Scripture. Now, we began this series noting that there are two, um, uh, two different cultures, different worldviews uh, within the world. We find ourselves more of a Western culture. It's more uh, Greek-focused. We, we get a lot of our, um, our cultural understandings from uh, the Roman-Greek area, and that's kind of played into our worldview, the West Western worldview, uh, but a lot of scripture was more of an Eastern worldview uh, type mentality. And again, those are not uh, one being better than the other. Just because the Bible was written to an Eastern culture does not make uh, the things in that culture uh, better or worse than uh, the cultural worldviews and values of uh, our more Western culture. They're just different. And, and we said at the outset of the series, and I'm going to continue to reiterate this, um, the reason why we are, are diving deep into this is so that we understand the differences there. If you don't understand the differences between a Western and an Eastern worldview when we come to Scripture, then we're going to read Scripture with our Western perspectives, and we're going to misread a lot of the things that are in Scripture. And so we, we come at it trying to read scripture in its context. Its context was written to a particular people in a particular region with a particular culture and worldview and all that that entails. And so we need to read it first as it was originally written. And then once we understand that, then we can um, begin building those bridges to our culture today and derive some of those truths and insights uh, for our day today. And so that's what this is all about. We as Christians, we need to understand Scripture in its context, and I hope that this series helps us do just that. Now, we looked already at uh, two particular um, differences within the uh, Eastern-Western cultural uh, divide. One was the kinship uh, relationships. Now, this entailed uh, family, friends. It was people in your tribe. It was people in your cultural um, area, your nation. Uh, these kinship relationships were connected in many different ways, and there were different structures than we're used to in our day and time. Uh, it was more of a patriarchal structure. There was the um, there was the either husband or male in some form or fashion that was over the entire family, the over the entire tribe or over the entire nation. And then down from him, uh, there were all these other connections. There were various levels of uh, family and national relationships, and everyone knew their place. Everyone knew who was above them, who was below them, uh, who had authority, who did not have authority, and uh, and that was just the world that they lived in. And we also saw that there was this idea of firstborn inheritance, that uh, the firstborn male heir in a family was supposed to receive the blessing, receive the inheritance, and when the father passed away, he would rise into that position. And with that uh, extra blessing, extra inheritance, he also had extra responsibility uh, to look after the family and to guide them into the future. And so we saw how that 
idea of kinship relationships and, and firstborn and blessings and inheritance and all those things played into uh, various um, biblical passages and, and elaborates on our understanding of what was going on and what was kind of unspoken in that culture uh, for us to uncover. Now, we saw last week this idea of honor and shame. Uh, honor being something that is uh, that people can be born with or people can attain through their actions. Shame being uh, uh, not necessarily always a negative thing, but something that uh, put boundaries around families, around communities to help keep them from danger, keep them from doing things that ought not be done. And so <clears throat> there was this use of honor and shame within the biblical world that isn't always negative. We often think of shame as kind of being negative, but in the biblical world, they were very positive things that were used to guide and shape a community. Now, let me say this, because this not only plays into what we've already discussed, but also playing in the days ahead, especially for tonight. Some of the things like honor and shame and, uh, and other things that we'll see in an Eastern culture, there were um, great benefits to these things. But just like any, with any good thing and any good gift God gives us, there are also uh, abuses of those things. So in an honor and shame culture, it can be a very good thing. It's good to have a sense of honor uh, with abiding by um, what is moral, what is ethical. And there is there is a good sense of shame when you're about to step over that line or when you have stepped over that line, that shame kind of brings you back into your community, into your family. That's a good thing, but that can be abused as well. And we've probably seen, you've probably seen or heard of instances within the Christian church and within communities where that honor-shame uh, value is, pushes people away and breaks down relationships. And so just keep that in mind that just because um, some of the things that we're going to hear in this series, we're going to think, oh, well, I don't know about that because you, you can readily see where it can be abused. Just because something can be abused doesn't mean that it is, in fact, intrinsically something bad. Uh, marriage relationships are a beautiful thing where a husband is the head of the home and the wife is supporting and following his leadership. That's a beautiful thing. But as we all know, it can be abused at times as well. Um, and, and so just keep that in mind. So with that said, uh, we're going to look at this idea of patron-client relationship in, uh, in, in the Bible, in Scripture. And if you're not familiar with what that is, I hope by the end of our time together uh, that we'll be more and more familiar. But see, we in our Western culture, we believe that all people are equal. And that they ought to be treated as equal. In fact, in America, we uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed with certain inalienable rights. And so we we understand that intrinsically, uh, we are cre all created, all people, uh, whether you're uh, young, old, or anywhere in between, you are created intrinsically, innately valuable and equal. That we're all in the same. Uh, um, uh, playing playing field, or, and, and that's and we should treat one another that way. But in Eastern cultures, they do not see people as equal. All right, now hold on before you begin judging. Just just understand, they do not see people as equal. Now um, they may see people as intrinsically equal, but that's not what we're really focused on. At least in Eastern cultures, they weren't thinking about everyone creating the image of God. Everyone's intrinsically equal. They were thinking in terms of if you look around the world, if you look around at people, if you uh, look at um, people with their skills, people with their intellect, people uh, and the families that they grow up in and the opportunities that they're able to have, 
um, Eastern cultures see that people are not equal. And so they should not be treated equally. And so when we begin wrestling with this idea, are people equal? Are they not equal? Let, let me just kind of lay these things out here. And let's just kind of look at it for a second before we go any further. The truth is people are intrinsically equal. Okay, so we in the Western culture, we, we, we do have that right. People are, by nature, creating the image of God. All of us are equal just because someone is the uh, president or a congressman or a judge or a teacher or whatever it may be. doesn't make them any better or worse than anyone else. We are all, in our nature, creating the image of God and equal. But the Eastern culture does get it right in the sense that just because we are intrinsically equal does not mean that in our day-to-day -day life that we are equal in any other way. Because in most cases, we are not equal in just about any other area of our life. Some people are intrinsically smarter than other people. All right, However you want to slice it, that, that's just a fact of life. Some people are more skilled. I will never be a basketball player. Okay, I, I don't have the, that skill set. I don't think I'll ever have that skill set. Okay, there are some people who are born with that skill set. And so there is this unequal um, distribution of gifts, intellect, opportunities. Some people are born into the better families than other uh, um, people. Some people have more opportunities than other people. And see, in our Western cultural mindset, we either try to ignore these differences, this inequality uh, that, that is just a part of life, or we try to superficially remove these inequalities. You see this a lot, and I'm not going to make this a, a political rant, but you see this a lot today where um, we are trying to um, forcefully make everyone equal on the same playing field, equal in pay, equal in opportunities, equal in all these various things. But the fact of the matter remains, we are not equal. Guys are, by nature, for the most part, stronger physically than women. Okay, that's just an inequality and no amount of, uh, of um, uh, force that we exert on that is really going to change that. Now, there are exceptions here and there, but for the most part, there is inequality in all kinds of areas of life. The Eastern cultures, they see that. They recognize it. They don't try to overlook it. They don't try to ignore it. They don't try to remove it. They embrace that. And that's going to be a big part of what we're going to be discussing today with this idea of patron-client relationship. Because at the heart of what Eastern cultures uh, um, embrace with this idea of patron-client is that there are some people who are more blessed, more wealthy, more smart, have more opportunities, and there are people who have less. And the patrons, those who have more, they reach out and they um, they bless those who have less, and it establish the, establishes this, reliant, uh, this relationship of I give to you, and as we're going to see in a little bit, when they give to one person, then it establishes a relationship where they give back, and it's just, it, it solidifies the community. It solidifies these relationships. And, and so here's where we're going to be stepping into some murky water for just a bit, if we haven't already done so. Um, now, let me say at the outset, this is a hard concept for me to grasp in my Western cultural mindset. Some of the things we're going to be talking about make me feel a little bit uncomfortable, okay? Um, just because it's hard for me to understand it, to to embrace it, um, especially as it as some of the things that we're going to see in Scripture. But it's there, and so we don't need to ignore it. We need to look at square in the face. So, one of the things that we need to understand in this patron-client relationship that was a big part of the biblical world is that gifts 
have strings attached. In Eastern culture, when a patron, those who have a lot, give to someone who's a client who don't doesn't have as much, there were strings attached to it. Think of it in, in some senses, and this is probably a poor analogy because there's a lot of negative connotations with this, but think of it almost like The Godfather. I'm not endorsing that you go and watch the movie, uh, but if you understand the concept behind The Godfather, there was uh, this um, the head of the mafia family who uh, would dole out favors to other people. They would go to uh, the, the Godfather and they would ask for a favor. He would grant them a favor and then he, uh, um, he would say, you know, I may call upon you uh, to uh, for a favor one day, and so that was kind of this idea that the patron would would bless the client, uh, and then he would expect that client to return a favor at a later time. And these were these strings that were attached uh, to this type of relationship, and it was. And it was a good thing in the Eastern culture. They saw it as a plus. And we in our culture, me personally, when I hear that, I think, well, that's horrible. You should give because you want to give. You should give with no strings attached. You should give because you want to bless someone else. But that's not the way they would see it in that Eastern, more biblical uh, culture. And again, please understand, just because it was a part of the Eastern culture does not mean that it is better than our Western culture. We're just trying to understand the culture of the people that we read about in Scripture. Now, to kind of unpack this a little bit more, there's an ancient Roman philosopher by the name of Seneca, and he wrote a lot about this giving of gifts and strings being attached, and he represented it as these three women uh, who... Uh, he calls the graces or the gifts. And these women, uh, they would hold hands and they would dance in a circle and stuff like that. And he said, this is an illustration of what it's like uh, to give gifts, this patron-client relationship. And here's what he said. This is a direct quote uh, from Seneca. He says, why the graces are three in number and why they are sisters, why they hold hands interlock, and why they are clad in loose and transparent garb. And now he explains it. He says this, Some would have it appear that there is one for bestowing a benefit. Now that's the patron. That's the one who gives the first gift. And then he says, Another for receiving it. Now that's the weaker client who receives the gift. And he says, And a third for returning it. Now this is where the weaker client who has already received the gift then completes the cycle by uh, blessing the pa uh, patron uh, in some way uh, to show his appreciation. And so that's, that's Seneca's way of, of showing what this looked like in the ancient world. The patron would start by giving the gift to the client. The client would receive the gift, and then later on he would try to bestow his appreciation by returning a gift or a favor to the patron. And it would just be this constant cyclical uh, giving of gifts that solidified the ancient world's communities and relationships. Now the point is, this gift isn't complete until, until it returns back to the patron. If the patron gave a gift to a client, but the client never uh, re repaid that favor, then in the ancient world they saw that there was something uh, amiss there. There's something the gift has not completed what it was supposed to do. And what it was supposed to do was build a relationship. It linked the client and the patron together in this continual cycle of giving and receiving gifts. Now, there's an example of this in Scripture. In Luke 16, Jesus tells a parable about a master who dismisses a servant. He fires a servant uh, for whatever reason, and then that servant, knowing that he's about to be dismissed, he goes to all of his master's 
uh, debtors and he says, hey, listen, how much do you owe? Okay, well, if you owe that much, I'm going to forgive you. And he wrote him an IOU, uh, how he forgave a certain amount of debt. And so that later when the servant was out of a job, he had amassed all these people who now owed that servant a favor. And so he built up a collection of relationships that would one day benefit him. They would be, they would enter into the cycle of, I received the gift, now I return a gift, and it goes around and around and around. And that's why in Luke 16, verse 9, Jesus concludes that parable by saying, And I say to you, make friends for yourself by unrighteous mammon. That's money. Take the money of the world, this, this thing that everyone's chasing after in the world, and make friends with it. And, and notice what he says next. That when you fail, or when you come into hard times, you may receive yourself in, uh, they may receive you into everlasting home. Basically saying, use the, the, the means that you have in this world to bless other people, to uh, build a relationship with them, to enter into this cycle of I've given to you, and that endears their heart back to you, and so they want to bless you, and you go round and round and round, so that when you fall into hard times, and you, uh, you have amassed a a group of friends who will uh, be willing to bless you and minister to you as well. This is also what we see in Paul when he writes in Romans 5, uh, verse 7. He talks about how God has blessed us and how he reaches out to us. And he says, uh, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. Now he's contrasting saying that, you know, um, God didn't owe us anything. It's not as though we bless God because we bless God, God owed us, and that's why he sent Christ. That's not what Paul's getting at, but he's saying in their culture, it's very rare for someone who would be willing to die for a righteous person. But if I have blessed another person, if I have given and given and I am known in my community to be very generous, then there may be people who would be willing to die for me because of how much I've poured into them and I've blessed them and helped them. That was uh, Paul's point there that uh, even a good person, there might be someone who's willing to die, but we weren't good when Christ died for us, which makes his giving of that gift even more powerful. Now, I understand. There are uh, there are different relationships where this can be abused. There is a patron-client relationship of I give to you and I expect you know there are strings attached and you come back and you're supposed to bless me at a later time and we go around and run around. This can be abused. And in fact, it was abused in biblical times. It's abused even in today in certain Eastern countries where, um, you know, there were patrons who would make their clients, make people who are seeking favor, seeking help, jump through hoops. They would make them do all kinds of crazy things. They're oftentimes uh, in these well-to-do houses in ancient times. Uh, the patron would sit there in this particular uh, reception room and there would be a long line of patron, I'm sorry, long line of clients who would each day come to this patron's house, this wealthy person's house, seeking favors. And he would have them just do all kinds of ridiculous and demeaning things to procure some of the favors, some of the help uh, that he would dole out to them. And so uh, that is not what the Bible condones at all. There would also be um, uh, patrons who would ask clients to do immoral and, and illegal things to return that favor. That's kind of what would happen a lot of times with the Godfather. Uh, you know, uh, he would do something for someone else, and then he would ask them to do something immoral or illegal afterwards to repay that favor. You would be in his debt. That is not what the Bible is getting at. But yes, that is a way that this was 
was abused in biblical times and it's been abused in uh, days today. And, uh, you know, it's also seen even in our culture where there are qualified people people who have the, the education, who have the skill to do a certain job or to get a loan or whatever it may be, but they can't because they don't have the connections. Um, and we see that in our day uh, today where uh, two people are applying for a job. They both have all the same uh, qualifications, but because this person has family connections with the CEO or because this person went to the same college as another person, they get the job rather than this other person who was just as qualified. It happens, and it's an unfortunate uh, part of, of life, but um, again, just because something is abused doesn't mean that the thing should be just thrown out uh, altogether. Now, again, another part of this client-patron relationship is that clients were to repay, and they were repaying all different types of way, but one of the chief things, even if you couldn't uh, pay back monetarily, even if you couldn't do a favor for someone else, and this happened quite a bit, you were at least bare minimum expected to have a sense of gratitude to praise your patron to speak well of him because he has helped you the sense of gratitude was throughout the ancient world if you didn't uh, show thankfulness if you didn't show gratitude uh, that was a huge huge indictment on your character and on your community in fact Seneca as we've quoted before he said this about gratitude he said homicides tyrants thieves adulterers, robbers, sacrilegious men, and traitors, there will always be. But worse than all of these is the crime of ingratitude. He said worse than homicides, worse than thieves, adulterers, robbers, all that sort of things. The worst of all of those are people who show ingratitude towards their patrons who have helped them and who have blessed them. Virgil is another ancient author who was, uh, um, he wrote just a generation before Jesus stepped onto the, the world stage. He wrote this. He says the worst section of hell is reserved for the Titans. That was a mythical Greek myth, uh, mythological group of monsters who uh, lived just before uh, the Greek gods of Zeus and them. He says uh, the worst section of hell is reserved for the Titans who rebelled against the gods and for the particularly despicable, uh, such as brothers who uh, disown another or expel their parents clients who defraud their patrons and those who won't give to their kinsmen or to a friend in need. And so here even Virgil, around just right around the time of Christ, talks about one of the worst things uh, that uh, a person could do is be ungrateful to those who have helped them. And we see this all throughout the world. In fact, I was just uh, reading of a story back in 2018. Uh, in Uganda, there was a politician who lost an election. And because he lost an election, he went around his community and he uh, took out the well pumps in, uh, in the community. He dismantled uh, 10 different wells around there and he told the locals that they needed to find their own water source. He helped install the wells. You didn't elect me. You didn't uh, re-elect me. And so go find your own water source. And when he was asked why he did this, he replied that the locals abused his generosity uh, by refusing to uh, support his re-election bid. Now, we look at this, and I would look at this, and I think, gosh, what a selfish guy. This is totally unjust and, and you know, good. He doesn't need to be in, um, in, in that electoral uh, position 
and that's from our Western uh, individualistic perspective. But it was interesting when other people in that town and in that region heard about this, they didn't see it as unjust. They didn't see it as selfish. In fact, what the people who were interviewed uh, in that community said is that they understood exactly why this guy did what he did. In fact, it was expected that he would do this particular thing because the people had chosen a different patron. They elected him before, and so he blessed them with wells and, and, and setting up schools and things like that. But now that they've chosen someone else, he took those blessings back because now it was the job of their new patron, the new person they, that they had elected, to establish new wells and to strengthen that relationship. And I know, again, believe me, this sounds strange. It sounds not right. It doesn't sound biblical. And I'm not saying that this is the way God wants us to work, but I am saying that this is the culture of much of the Eastern world in which the Bible was written. So that was how relationships were established. That was how relationships uh, were solidified. Now, how does this play into the Bible? How does this enlighten and, and uh, help us see various passages in different ways. Well, we're going to look at a, a couple passages uh, specifically uh, from Jesus uh, as he teaches where this really crops up in a number of ways. For instance, in Matthew 6, verses 3 through 4, it says this, But when you do charitable, uh, when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right is doing, that your charitable deeds may be seen in secret, and your Father who sees what is secret, uh, secret will himself reward you Openly. Now, we would read this, and oftentimes I would read this, and I would think, okay, there you go. I'm I'm not to let my left hand know what my right hand is doing. I don't need to do things out in the open. I need to just give without any strings attached. Give so that people don't know what I've done, so that, uh, you know, not seeking the praise, not seeking um, uh, payback or anything like that. But notice that Jesus is, when he's teaching this, he's not trying to destroy this reciprocal, uh, I give and I, I don't, um, and I get something back. He's actually playing into it by saying, when you give, you give, and you are getting something in return. Your Heavenly Father pays you back. See, we are not giving to that other person. We're actually giving to God. We bless him and he blesses us and which endears our heart more to him. So we bless, we serve and we bless him again by blessing others and he continues to bless us. And it's much the same pattern of God is our patron. We are the clients. He has already blessed us and that establishes that relationship with us to where we want to bless him, which then he continues to bless us and, and opens it up to, for us to receive more of his blessing. It just goes round and round and round. It's the same concept. It's just directed not towards another person, but back towards God. We also see this again in Luke 14. It says, Then he also said to him who invited him, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, at uh, least they also invite you back so that you will be repaid. Again, that's that client-patron relationship. I give to them. They give back to me. He says, Don't do that. Don't look at that. So that's kind of going against uh, what his culture was saying, what Jesus' culture taught. He says, but when you hold a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they can't repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection for the just. He's saying, when you do these things, don't... You, you build a relationship with the poor and the needy by blessing them, but your reward is not to the needy, it's from God. The God is going to bless you. Your gift to them is actually a gift to God, and it solidifies your relationship with Him, and you will receive your blessing 
at a later time. See, the whole concept, if you really want to understand how the East, uh, Eastern cultures were uh, understand gifts and blessings. It's all about establishing a relationship, these bonds, these strings that are attached, establish a relation and solidify. Okay. Uh, you see this um, when Jesus um, uh, is later teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. He challenges us in this powerful way. He says this in uh, Matthew 5. He says, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist the evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn him away. Now again, this is all about um, there are people who want to take from you. There are people, there are enemies, uh, there are just needy people who want to take. And what Jesus is teaching here is you give to them. You don't just give what they ask, but you go above and beyond that. Uh, taking away your cloak, you know, he talks about someone who sues me for my tunic, give him the cloak as well. He's not expecting my cloak. He's just suing me. He's trying to take my tunic, but I'm going to give him a gift and give him a cloak. Now, I used to read this and think, okay, all he's just saying is be nice to those who, who want to take or who are hurting you. Don't try to get back at them, but just kill them with kindness, basically. But he's going at it more than that. Not just um, not just give to them and then just walk away, you know, bless them and just go about your merry way, blessing uh, even those who hurt you. But he's this establishing of relationships. I'm going to give even my enemies a gift so that I can hopefully turn my enemies into a friend. I'm going to turn them into a friend by giving them a gift, which then will hopefully, if going by their culture, will endear them to want to repay that gift and will begin getting into this cycle of I give you a gift, you give me a gift, and we go round and round and round, and hopefully it will bring us closer. In fact, Jesus goes on and he says this, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be uh, sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes the, his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Here, basically, Jesus is saying, listen, those who are persecuting you, those who are your enemies, you love them and you give them a gift, hoping to begin to turn them into a friend by... Uh, by establishing the, the strings that are attached to your gift, endearing their heart to you so that they give you a gift and you can give them another gift, and around and around you go, and we make friends of our enemies. And this is exactly what God has done for each and every one of us, that he sent Jesus uh, to us while we were still sinners. That was God's gift to us that would endear our hearts to him so that we would want to bless him with our lives and so that he would continue to open up more pathways to pour greater blessings into us and around and around we go. And that is what he wants us to do even to our enemies. And so again, 
I hope that as we think through these relationships of patron and client, these uh, these gifts that were given to establish these relationships, it opens our eyes to uh, all of Scripture and how the ancient world worked and how this played into a lot of the images that we see in the letters of the Apostle Paul. You read through uh, the book of Philemon. Uh, Paul uses this uh, idea of patron-client relationship a lot uh, within that. And so just uh, go and read Scripture and, and see how this just brings to life new passages. And I hope God will bless you with it. Uh, well, I think that will wrap us up for uh, this week's lesson. Now, next week, I'm really excited. We're going to uh, be looking at shepherds and sheep and this image that is throughout uh, Old Testament and New Testament. You know, oftentimes, God is referred to as a shepherd. Jesus says he's the good shepherd. And so next week, we're going to be looking at this uh thoroughly biblical image and what that means, uh, what are some of the truths that sometimes we overlook. And I hope you'll join us next week for that. I'm really excited about it. I hope you won't miss it. But until then, take care and God bless.